Good morning, church. Um, my name is Jordan Bertrand, and my husband Matt and I are community group leaders. And I'm going to be reading the scripture for us this morning. It's out of Mark chapter 1, and we're in verses 21 through 34, if you want to turn there with me. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. And the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were there, or who were sick with various diseases, and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak, because they knew him. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Jordan. Hey, my name is Tanner House. If you're new, I'm the uh, lead pastor here of Redeemer Church Odessa. It is good to be with you this morning. Hey, if you don't have a Bible, uh, raise your hand. My buddy Chad back there is ready and equipped to, to get you a Bible. If you need one, throw your hands up. He can help you out. Um, there's one over there, Chad. Um, hey, we're, again, we're in Mark chapter 1, and if you're on your phone or your tablet, I'm using the ESV. And so you are welcome to turn there to, to Mark chapter 1. We're going to be continuing on our series of Mark. Last week, uh, we saw Jesus walking alongside the Sea of Galilee. And he calls four fishermen and turns them into fishers of men. The significance of this is that at great personal risk and potential great financial losses, these men left everything that they had. They left their families behind, and they went, and they followed Jesus. The question that this action causes us uh, to come to terms with is, is twofold, I think. Number one, what type of person is Jesus that he could demand this type of costly obedience and expect us to follow him? What type of person is Jesus that he demands and expects this type of obedience from men and women? What is this Jesus guy offering folks that they are willing to leave everything behind to completely obey and to follow? Number two, what does that even mean for us? If we believe that Jesus is God 
And we believe that God in his nature is unchanging, and he's unchanging in his character, and he's unchanging in his mission, then we have to realize that this calling that Jesus places on the disciples 2,000 years ago, that day by the Sea of Galilee, is the exact same calling that he is giving people today. What does that mean for us as believers in 2021? And how can we know that it is worthy and a worthwhile calling to follow Jesus, forsaking everything else? Essentially, I want to wrestle with why do we follow Jesus when he calls us? So think about your own life for a second. Think about your friends or your family or your bosses, or if you are a boss, your employees. What qualities do they possess that make you want to be around them? What qualities do they possess that make you respect them? What qualities do they possess that completely repel you and disrespect them, make you just want to be away from them? For example, maybe you have a boss that is just a boss. This boss is not really a leader. He or she will give you tasks and expect you to do things just because he or she doesn't want to do them. Or what if, like, you're a parent? Maybe you have expectations on your kids to obey you because that's part of the parent-child relationship. We're to train them and we're to guide them, and part of that is discipline. But what if my discipline of my kids is just in the form of idle threats? My kids are never, ever going to take me seriously because I never, ever follow through with what I say is going to happen, what the consequences are. Or let me try to explain it this way. I'm going to let you in to a little part of my life that I'm not always super comfortable sharing with everybody. When I was in high school, I was the lead singer of a garage band. Man, we looked the part, too. If you were in high school around the same time that I was in high school, uh, we were like this emo-punk crossover band. Uh, I was neither emo nor punk. But I could play some of those songs on the guitar, so it was like natural. I just start this garage band. I put together a group of dudes, and we formed a band. You're looking at the lead singer of Granola Joe and the Crunchy Oatmeal Trio. Yeah. Don't try to YouTube us. We're not there. Uh, that was the name of one of our bands. Another band I had, I think we were called Dead Ends and Girlfriends. It's just very early 2000s angsty teenage stuff, you know. Um, I'm not proud of it, but whatever. Uh, we definitely looked the part, though. I had this, like, floppy mop head of hair, and I wore these big fat daddy skateboarding shoes. I did not skate. But two of the guys in my band, they were emo punky dudes with, with skateboards that they could actually use and not fall. So we went and we auditioned for the school talent show. And guess what? We hadn't really practiced we looked the part. We could not back it up. We didn't have any real talent. We didn't have any real drive. I wanted you to believe that I was good at this rock star gig. And if you're familiar with the early 2000s music, I wanted you to believe that I was the skater boy Avril Lavigne was singing about. But I wasn't. I wasn't even close. Man, but what we're going to see in Jesus' life, what we're going to see in Jesus is different. 
Jesus' life and his ministry are different, and they command something different from us. They call us to believe. Because of what we're going to see throughout the Gospel of Mark, and, and specifically what we're going to see and experience today, everything has changed. So let's pray, and we're going to dive in. Lord Jesus, we need you. Lord, thank you that you are God and that you are unchanging in nature and character. Lord, that you are still calling people to faith and repentance even today. So, Lord, I pray that you would do a work in this room this morning. Lord, we love you. Lord, we trust you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 21, it says, And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue, and he was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. So, from the Sea of Galilee, we see Jesus showing up in this town of Capernaum on the Sabbath. A few days have probably passed since Jesus has called those first disciples, those four fishermen, because they would not, as good Jewish boys, they would not have been working on the Sabbath. It was, however, a pretty common practice for a visiting teacher to be invited to speak or to read scripture when he was visiting a synagogue. So here we see Jesus speaking at this synagogue, which is a Jewish place of worship. Um, And because he's on the stage reading the scrolls, this means that Jesus is already establishing a reputation as a teacher. What we know from the scriptures, though, is Jesus, unlike the other rabbis, has had no formal training. So Jesus opens the scroll, and he reads it, and he comments on it, and he rolls it up. Mark makes no indication as to what he read, but the other gospel accounts indicate that he probably read something out of the prophets, probably Isaiah. And the text says that the crowds were astonished at his teaching. Astonished from the Greek to give a 21st century interpretation is like mind blown. They were blown away by his teaching. Jesus not only read the text, he not only exegeted the text or explained the text, but unlike the scribes and teachers of the day, Jesus actually applied the text to the lives of the hearers. Jesus had authority, but his authority was different from the scribes. The scribes were the religious elite of the day. They were the religious teachers of the day. It was considered a great honor to sit under their teaching. They had authority to interpret the law of the Old Testament. Some were Pharisees, some were Sadducees, which we're not going to get into today. We'll get into the differences between those two offices later in our study of Mark. But one thing we noticed between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they were always in friction with Jesus. They were in constant friction with Jesus. Jesus never once questioned the legitimacy of their office. He did, however, call out their hypocrisy. Have you ever had a conversation with someone about Jesus and they think they can't be saved because of how many bad things they've done? Because of how bad their life has been? Well, these guys are in danger of pushing the pendulum so far in the other direction. On the whole, they don't think they need saving because of their morality. 
I don't know who needs to hear this this morning, but both of those positions are incorrect. You cannot earn your salvation based on your morality, and you cannot outsend God's ability to save and forgive you. Jesus quoting the Psalms says in Mark 10 that no one is good except for God alone. Man, some of you can assent in your heads that God has saved you or that God can save you, but in your hearts you function like God is unwilling to help you because of all the bad stuff you've done. Listen, God's grace is good. God's grace is better than the lies you are believing about yourself. In Christ, you are not damaged goods. Both unbelief in God's goodness and the unbelief that you don't need God stem from pride. And God is gracious to call you both out of that unbelief. So back to the scribes. Their authority was derived from the tradition of men. Jesus, on the other hand, his authority, like the prophets of the Old Testament, was given directly by God. Jesus, again, is showing that upon his arrival on the scene, things are changing. The Messiah has come. We know this because of what happens next. Verse 23 says, And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. So when Mark uses the word immediately, and he uses it often, uh, he's saying something akin to our use of like, and all of a sudden, so all of a sudden, Jesus is teaching, and Jesus is teaching with authority, and there is a man with an unclean spirit that shows up at this church. The language used here means that this dude has a demon. And this led me to a bunch of questions I'm going to spare you the bulk of them or we'd be here all day. But I will present to you a little bit of my thinking on this. This man, being in a synagogue on the Sabbath, shows that he is a Jewish man. Stay with me. How does a man possessed by a demon get into this place of worship undetected? Two things to consider. If this guy, who is clearly possessed by a demon, can get into a place like this first century synagogue with all of their rules and restrictions about who can enter in the first place, then we should not assume that our places of worship are safe from this sort of attack either. Number two, the fact that this guy who is clearly possessed by a demon can get into a place like this also shows how stale and religious and non-threatening this place has become to Satan and his, and his army of demons. May this be a warning to us. I am not in favor of having demons attend church with us. Please don't hear me say that. But I do want to be aware of a very real danger and a very present reality of a lot of West Texas churches and a lot of Bible Belt churches. That danger is this. If the Holy Spirit were to leave the majority of churches in our region, so much of what goes on in those churches would still go on. 
So much of what goes on at that church and those churches would just continue to go on. Ministry would still flow out of a sense of duty and obligation. Ministry would still flow from a place of tradition, and it is stale, and it is lifeless, and it is non-transformational, and we are just going through the motions. Rather than ministry flowing from hearts inclined towards worship and adoration of a resurrected Savior who has called and equipped the church of God to reach the world with the message of the gospel. It is entirely possible, listen to me, it is entirely possible to do a bunch of stuff by way of service to God and still have disbelief in your heart. It is entirely possible to do a bunch of stuff for God and never get to Jesus. It is possible to attend, it is possible to give, it is possible to serve, not from a place of worship and gratitude for what God has done for you, but in an effort to please God and earn your salvation. Don't do that. God is offering you something better. Back to the text. <laughs> uh, in God's sovereignty, this demon-possessed guy was in, t- was in attendance at the synagogue on the exact same day and time that Jesus was going to be there. And here comes Jesus. Look at this exchange, verse 24. Uh, we see in the end of verse 23 that the demon-possessed guy cries out, and in verse 24 he says, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent, come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. So Jesus is taught with authority. He's taught the scriptures with authority. And then we see this demon overpowering his host vocal cords. He begins to have a conversation with Jesus. He reveals who Jesus is and what he has come to do. He says, you are Jesus. You're Jesus of Nazareth. Not only that, he says, you're the Holy One of God. You are the Messiah. Have you come to destroy us? Most commentators suggest that this, is, this question that the demons ask is less of a question and more of a statement like, oh great, he's here to destroy us. It's interesting to note, though, that the demons actually have a better theology than the disciples. Demons were there with God at the beginning, but not as demons. They were angels who would become demons by following Satan in his rebellion and in his attempt to overthrow God. God has therefore placed them in eternal prison. So not only do they know and recognize Jesus because he's a member of the Trinity and was there at the beginning as well, they also know what their eternal fate is. He is one day going to bind them all in hell for eternity. They know this. The writer of James says that they know who Jesus is and they shudder. They know that with the coming of Jesus, with the coming of the Son of God to earth, they are moving towards this decisive moment in history that will ultimately spell their end. Follow me here for a second. The writer in James, James chapter 2, mentions in conjunction with the demons that faith without works is dead. Again, I do not want to beat a dead horse, 
But in our West Texas culture, this needs to be reiterated over and over and over again. It is entirely possible, church, it is entirely possible to do a bunch of good, godly things with wrong, sinful motives. The demons know who Jesus is, but that does not save them. Many people will say they believe in God. Many people will say that they believe in Jesus, but their lives look nothing like what he is calling us to. James says even the demons know God, and they're destined to eternal punishment. Knowledge alone does not lead to love and trust in God. It's interesting to me that they are the first ones to confess Christ as the Holy One in the New Testament. They know who Jesus is. He is not just a man who teaches with authority. He is God. Jesus' own disciples don't realize this until after the resurrection. The first person to confess Christ as the Son of God in the Gospels is the Roman centurion who would pull Jesus' body off the cross. The disciples do not understand this until much later. They confess Jesus as the Christ, and Jesus rebukes them. He says in the Greek, be silent. The English equivalent is like, shh. Like, S-H-U-T-U-P, shh. There's kids in the room. I'm going to watch my mouth. This is known as the the messianic secret. I don't want to spend a ton of time on this today because it's coming later in subsequent texts. But as Jesus heals more and more people and casts out more and more demons, he tells people not to speak or not to tell anyone. This is a puzzling aspect about Jesus' ministry for many people. Why wouldn't he permit the demons or healed people to speak? The first century Jews have been waiting on the Messiah. Wouldn't people testifying to the Messiah help like help people realize, like, hey, he's here. The Jews have been in captivity on and off for a few thousand years. In the Old Testament, we will see them being enslaved by the Egyptians, by the Philistines, by the Assyrians, by the Babylonians, and ultimately at the time of Jesus, the Romans. This is a weary and tired people, and they are wanting to be redeemed. Their prophets prophesied about a Messiah. They are wanting a political and a military leader that is going to come in and overthrow the Roman government and reestablish the kingdom of David. On the other hand, the prophecies tell of a Messiah who would be of humble origins, who would be a suffering servant before he was a conquering king. You see, in Jesus Christ, the Jews get the Messiah that they're promised but not the one they are wanting or the one that they're expecting. They're looking at their own agendas, their own personal agendas, rather than God's plan laid before the foundation of the world. So Jesus likely didn't want to be known primarily as a wonder worker or a magician or a political or military deliverer. Such a reputation might compromise his mission on earth. His plan for redemption. Man, and before we spend a lot of time kicking around the Jewish people, we are guilty of the exact same thing. We're not oppressed. We're not oppressed people in the same way that that the Jewish nation was. 
but we do go through difficulty and hardships. And oftentimes we allow those perceived trials and sufferings to cloud our view and understanding of who Jesus is. We place on Jesus our own wants and our own expectations of who we want him to be. And then we, we get upset when he doesn't meet our expectations. But listen, there is purpose in all of this. Stay with me. Don't check out on me. What we see in the book of Mark is there is tension between the known and the unknown, the revealed and the veiled. Until the cross and resurrection, the true nature of Jesus cannot be fully known. I'd like to present this for your consideration. Jesus can and does perform miracles. But his primary focus is not miracles. Listen to me very carefully. Whether you are a Christian or not, Jesus is not your genie. Also, Jesus is not against you. Man, if you're praying for something to happen and it doesn't happen or it doesn't happen right away, if you're praying for healing or for deliverance of some kind and it isn't happening, that does not mean you have done something so bad that God isn't going to answer your prayer. If you are a Christian, God is pleased with you. you're in Christ, your struggle is brief in light of eternity. If you're in Christ, Jesus wants you to pray to him. What if what we're dealing with strengthens our dependency on Christ? Wouldn't we say that while it is hard and while it may not always be pretty, it was worth it if we become more like Christ? Somebody holler back. Scripture invites us not to trust ourselves, not to trust our feelings. Christianese often says, I don't have a peace about this. The worldly equivalent is, that just doesn't feel right to me. I am begging you as your pastor, test your feelings against the Word of God. Not against whatever worldly philosophy is reigning in pop culture today. If you feel like God isn't going to answer your prayer because of how bad you have been, test that hypothesis against the scriptures. Man, if you're not, in, not a Christian, God doesn't want to fix your problems before he redeems your life. God wants your heart. God wants your life. Jesus went to the cross and rose from the grave to demonstrate his own love for you. He is not a wish granter. He is the God of the universe, and he deserves to be Lord of your life. I love this quote from a guy named Dane Ortland. He has a book out called Gentle and Lowly. Uh, another reason for, for miracles is this. Jesus Christ's earthly ministry was one of giving back to undeserving sinners their humanity. We tend to think of miracles of the Gospels as interruptions in the natural order. Yet, miracles are not an interruption of the natural order, but the restoration of the natural order. 
We are so used to a fallen world that sickness, disease, pain, and death seem natural. In fact, they are the interruption. When we see Jesus expel demons and heals the sick, he is driving out of creation the powers of destruction. And he is healing and restoring created beings who are hurt and sick. The lordship of God to which the healings witness restores creation to health. Jesus' healings are not supernatural miracles in a natural world. They are the only truly natural thing in a world that is unnatural, demonized, and wounded. So back to the Sabbath incident. God's plan to redeem people. God's plan is to redeem people. But before Jesus sets up his earthly kingdom, he must set up a spiritual kingdom first. Jesus in the first century does not appear all that interested in going to war with the Romans. He's in a battle for the hearts and lives of people. So Jesus quiets the demons, and then he tells them to get out of this dude, and they obey him. So now we see that not only do the demons recognize him, but they also listen to him. In verse 27 and 28, it says, And they, being the crowd, they were all amazed. So they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the region surrounding Galilee. So these witnesses to this have experienced something different. Jesus taught as one with authority, and then with the combination of Jesus' teaching and this miracle in one account, this shows that Jesus is both powerful in word and deed. What a crazy church service. People leave and they're returning to their homes and they're like, girl, you would not believe what happened at the synagogue today. News was getting around, and Jesus was becoming famous. Man, if he had a TikTok, he'd be blowing up. So the service is over, and they leave. Verse 29 says, and immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came, and he took her by the hand, and he lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. So they're walking along. I wonder what this walk was like for the disciples, Peter, Andrew, James, John. They're probably like, bro, like three days ago, we were just out there fishing, minding our own business, and now we're running around with this guy, and he's talking to demons, and the demons are listening to him. What have we gotten ourselves into? Yeah, just imagine what that must have been like for these guys. So they go to Simon Peter's house, and his mother-in-law is allegedly spending the night or living there. They're going to Simon's house for a meal, and as it turns out, the hostess is sick. They inform Jesus that his mother-in-law is sick, that Peter's mother-in-law is sick. So Jesus goes in and he sees her. He takes her by the hand and he raises her up. No more fever. Not even the post-recovery time for sickness. You know what I mean? Like, 
you're not really sick anymore, but you still don't feel great. You're not 100%. You're still really weak and worn down. There's not even a hint of that. Peter's mother-in-law gets up and joins the people who are serving the food. She has been completely restored. The language used here by Mark is the same language he would use when he's talking about Christ's resurrection. Because of the resurrection, Jesus is making things new and right again. Jesus, in healing Peter's mother-in-law, shows she has been restored. And because she's been restored and healed by Jesus, she is changed and she is made new. Verse 32, it says, That evening at sundown, they, being the town, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Again, Jesus is becoming quite popular. People will know Jesus. People have also heard what Jesus has done. So they go to Jesus, and Jesus heals many, our text says. And he casts out demons, and he doesn't allow them to speak. Jesus is demonstrating his power over nature because he is the creator of nature. Jesus is demonstrating his power over the demonic because he has kingly rule and reign over the spiritual realm. Jesus is demonstrating his power and authority as a teacher because all of the scriptures testify to who he is. Both of these accounts highlight the power and authority of Jesus. There are some things that I want to submit to you as we move toward our close today. Some things that I think we need to glean from this text. Jesus never performs miracles for the sake of miracles. Imagine you're sitting down with Jesus for a cup of coffee and you look in Jesus' coffee mug, and he's like, Bleh. pardon the coffee in the mug, like, Bleh. and then you look at his Topo Chico, and it's turned from fizzy water into wine. Like, Jesus isn't doing miracles for the sake of doing miracles. He's not doing miracles to show off for people. He's not even doing them to prove anything to anyone. I'll explain what I mean by that in a second. Jesus is after one thing. Jesus is concerned before anything else. He is concerned with the glory and honor and praise of the Father. So in doing these miracles, Jesus is showing that God is all-powerful to do great and mighty things. Things that have never been done before. I personally am not one who rejects miracles or supernatural healings and deliverance and things like that. I am, however, one who would completely reject a man-centered mindset and disposition surrounding those things. There's a real danger when it comes to the miraculous to make these things all about me and what I can do. Rather, God gives gifts of healing and other spiritual gifts to the church as gifts for the edification of the body of Christ, not for our own vanity. God gives spiritual gifts to the church so that the church can grow and flourish in our worship of him and our mission from him. They are not given to us so that we can glorify ourselves. 
So let us keep watch on ourselves and let us keep watch on our brothers and sisters in Christ to make sure that our service to the Lord is ultimately about serving the Lord and serving the church, not puffing ourselves up. That is prideful. That is sinful. Secondly, this text teaches us that Jesus does, in fact, care. Jesus cares for your physical and your mental well-being. We see this all throughout the Gospels. Jesus showing compassion to those who are demon-possessed. Thus, being affected both cognitively and physically. Jesus heals sick people. Jesus restores sight to the blind. Jesus makes the lame walk and the deaf hear. And the mute speak. Jesus does, in fact, care. But more than just physical and mental health, I'd argue that what I'm about to say is even more important. Jesus cares about your spiritual well-being first. What we're going to see moving forward in Mark is oftentimes that these healings, in conjunction with these healings, Jesus pronounces forgiveness of sins on people first. How mean would it be for Jesus to heal somebody and not save their soul? And Jesus cares. Jesus pronounces forgiveness on sins. Which leads me to this. Our struggles, our physical sicknesses, our physical limitations, even our sin struggles are opportunities for God to get glory in our lives. I do not want to suggest that God makes us sick. I do want to submit very, very gently to you all, though, that sometimes God does allow us to endure hardships. But not because he's mad or angry or vengeful or spiteful or because you've committed X number of sins and it's time to get punished. But as we discussed last week, the goal of the Christian walk is that you become more like Jesus. So when we're faced with trials and tribulations in this life, the goal is that our faith and dependency on Jesus are strengthened. The goal is that we're more focused on Christ and less focused on ourselves. In struggle, in trial, in suffering, we actually get to identify with Jesus on the cross. If you're suffering, I cannot tell you that it is going to get better. If you are struggling, I cannot tell you that it is going to get better on this side of eternity. But I can tell you that if you're in Christ, you have an eternity waiting for you where you will be perfected in both body and spirit. And Jesus, who cares for you, is there. In 1 Thessalonians 5, it says that we are to be thankful in all circumstances. Not that we have to be thankful for all things, but we can be thankful in any circumstance we find ourselves in because in any circumstance there is an opportunity to become more like Christ because the Apostle Paul says God works all things for the good of those who love him. Hey Mark, can you grab that door, man? Thank you. I hear that Nerf football flying through the air out there. <laughs> the vortex mega howler. Finally, 
I'll close with this. As I previously said, Jesus doesn't perform miracles for the sake of performing miracles. He doesn't have to prove anything to anyone. I'll tell you why that is. The cross and the resurrection are sufficient proof that God is who he says he is. Jesus Christ died in our place. The fact that Jesus Christ was willing to die in our place is enough to hang our hopes on. Jesus doesn't perform miracles to prove that he is God. He rose from the dead to prove that he is God. So think about this. What is more amazing than the healing of a sick person or the casting out of a demon is bringing spiritually dead people back to life. Sometimes we forget that. Sometimes we forsake that for the sexiness of physical healings and other signs and wonders. When Jesus gives the gospel to the church, the invitation isn't, hey, come look at what I can do. Come look at all these miracles. Come look at these signs and wonders. The invitation isn't to check out the show. It's to check out the risen Lord who brings dead people back to life. Who redeems sinners for himself. Who defeated sin and death. Signs and wonders are not the gospel. They can serve as signposts. However, we are far too easily impressed if we only stop there and never get to the saving work of Jesus. Trust this. Trust that because Christ can perform miracles, he will perform miracles and can help you in whatever trials you're facing. But also trust this. Trust that because of the cross and resurrection, your greatest need has already been fulfilled. If nothing else, if everything in your life is hard, if your marriage is hard, if your singleness is hard, if your parenting is hard, if your relationships are hard, if work is hard, if your physical existence is hard, Christ rose from the grave. Christ rose from the grave showing he has defeated sin and death and brokenness. And this is not all that there is. You, Christian, have been given new life in Jesus. And that is wonderfully good news. And it is infinitely better than anything we can and will experience on this side of eternity. Jesus is God. And if you can trust him for your eternity... He is worthy of being trusted with today. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for calling men and women to salvation. Lord, thank you that the greatest miracle of all is that you rose from the dead. Lord, that you defeated sin and death on our behalf. Lord, that you didn't just die for us, that you died instead of us. Lord, may we never grow tired of celebrating the resurrection. Lord, because in that is life. And life abundantly. Lord, when life gets hard, 
may we know that you went to the cross. Lord, but I would just pray this morning that you would be near to the brokenhearted in this room this morning. Lord, that you would save the Christian spirit, Lord, that you um, would heal the spiritually broken, Lord, that you would bind up broken hearts, Lord, that you would restore the natural order, Lord, that we would not grow comfortable with the brokenness around us. Lord, we need you. Show us our need for you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.